0: Welcome to the New Harvest podcast. You are listening to part 11 of the First John sermon series. Today's sermon is called You have overcome the world, and the scripture reading comes from the book of First John chapter 5 verses 4 through 5 and 18 through 21. The Bible says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols.
1: Uh, you will be glad to know that we have finally reached the end of 1 John. And uh, I will not preach about 1 John anymore until 2021. Um, and so throughout this letter, uh, if you were kind of paying attention, you can see like that John is really focused on defining authentic Christianity for his younger brothers and sisters. Since some of them were kind of confused Uh, because there were conflicting teachings. So he lays out, like, all these different marks, these different characteristics of a genuine Christian. So we've kind of gone through all of those, right? A genuine Christian, you know, walks in the light, has fellowship with God, confesses his sins, and his sins are forgiven. You know, a genuine Christian, they're born from God. They're born of God. And those who are born of God cannot continue sinning. We have come to know Him, if we keep His commands, if we love one another, if His love is made perfect in us. Right. So there's all these kind of markers, or traits, or whatever you want to call them, that Paul, that that John says this is what it means to be a real, genuine Christian. You believe that He's the Christ. You acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and all of those things. And so, so today. We're going to finally look at, I think, the last defining mark of a true Christian. Uh, that's found in the uh, at the end of chapter five. All right? He says in verse five, chapter John five verse five. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. All right? So he says this is how you can. This is one of the marks of a Christian. A Christian is someone who has overcome the world. And when you think about it, this doesn't really sound like John, right? It doesn't sound like the John that we know, right? Because the John that we know talks about boring things, mundane things. He says things that an old Sunday t- a school teacher would say, right? Like very cliche things like, oh, God is love. Jesus is faithful and just to forgive your sins whenever you confess your sins to him. And so we are all God's children. So let us love one another. Like these are the kind of things that you would expect to hear at a Sunday school, right? From an old lady. Right? John seems to be gentle and meek. Right? He isn't fiery and hot tempered. Like Peter, you know, Peter, if you read the Gospels, if you read the New Testament, he's always yelling at somebody. He's always ready to get in a fight. He's ready to like jump in the water. Like when Jesus is walking in the water, he's the one that says, Lord, if it's you, let me let me let me walk on the water. Tell me to come and I'll come. Right. He's always getting into trouble. He's, you know, cutting people's ears off. right? He's always shouting. Right. Like, you know, I, you know. I'll never forsake you. I'll never do this. Or I'll do everything for you. Right? So I can easily imagine Peter shouting, right? In Christ, we have overcome the world. And then running into danger, getting into trouble. I can see that. Because it fits his character. It kind of fits who he is. But John is all about love and peace and uh, laying down our lives. He's humble and soft-spoken like a monk. And so it's kind of strange that John is the one saying a Christian is someone who has overcome the world. The the word overcome is nikao, which means uh, to conquer. So he's saying a Christian is someone who has conquered or is conquering the world. And John doesn't look like the type of person that will say something like that, right? Because it sounds boastful, it sounds... Macho, it sounds like a little bit conceited to, for, for, for John to say that. So I can't really imagine John saying something like that. right? But John says it a lot. Right? Uh, in fact, he actually says the word conquer or overcome more than anyone else in the New Testament. So the word overcome appears in its, like different forms 28 times in the New Testament. And John uses it 24 times, 15 times in the book of Revelation. And so now you're reminded of the fact that the writer of one of the most mundane, boring books of the Bible is often the author of one of the most wildest, mysterious, and captivating books of the Bible. And so if you actually look through, and we're going to do that, we're going to look through a few verses in Revelations, he talks about overcoming Allah. He talks about it's like a very persistent theme for him. So we're going to look at Revelations 2, seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Next. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Again. Just as I... Uh, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. They they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. One more. Uh, They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Right? So you see, like this is a big theme. right? And you don't expect John to be saying stuff like this. Kind of talking like, you know, in this kind of militaristic way. About fighting and war and battle. And saying we're going to overcome. Or, you know, Christians, we have overcome. And then we also have scenes like this. Uh, in Revelation, right? Uh, We're going to read a little bit here um, from Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It doesn't sound... Like John at all. But he's the one that wrote this. He's the one that had this vision. And then it talks a little bit more. I guess we'll just finish this. Um, right. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider and on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet would perform miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword and came out of the mouth of the rider and the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Right, it just sounds crazy. It sounds wild. Right? It sounds like the Avengers movie. Right? With all the armies and all the people coming together for this big final battle. It doesn't sound realistic at all right it sounds fictional so when you read revelations you're kind of struck by this grand like cosmic otherworldliness of it right these visions of heaven these visions of angels falling out of the sky you know angels fighting each other you know the the, the seven seals for the seven churches. The, you know, the, the, the horn beast and the times of tribulation, the four horsemen, the final judgment, new heaven and new earth, all of these things, right? Are very unlike John, right? He is single handedly responsible for all of the uh, apocalyptic end of the world like John are that we know of today. Right? All of those like, references come from Revelations, right, these ideas. About the mark of the beast and you know people being left behind and things like that, and you know the the thousand years of tribulation that the uh that the righteous ones will suffer and all of these different things right it sounds like the craziest fantasy novel ever written, and then first John is completely the opposite, right it sounds very original, a uh, very uh you know ordinary, just a normal religious. Document telling you to love one another and be nice to each other and be good to each other, right? And then, but then there's several places even in First John, like the like the passages that we read, where he kind of starts talking about these things, right? In John chapter two, First John chapter two, he says, I'm, "I'm writing this to you because you'll overcome the evil one." And then he also mentions like, the Antichrist is here, and there are already many Antichrists and things like that. Right? and then he says in chapter 5 like we read you know you have overcome the world right it is as if like all of these kind of supernatural spiritual aspects of his faith are kind of oozing out of his words right like 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 the like first john is like pregnant with revelation right with like these supernatural things with the with the Visions of like this hidden world, and he just can't kind of stop himself. It kind of just comes out of him. He just says, You've overcome the evil one, right? You're, you're in this hidden battle, this fight that you don't, you're not really aware of right now. And I think this is how it should be, right? Like Christians, he just shouldn't be a bunch of like dull, lifeless rules and commands like this is what you need to do this is like the right way to live this is how you can be a good person on earth and it can't just be overly spiritualized hot air about like going to heaven and like spiritual things and angel dust and feathers or or whatever people talk about right in Christ you see the dual nature right of of Christianity, right? For in Christ, the divine rested with the dust. Right? Man and, and, and God you know, shared one space. They were united in this way. And so our faith must also embrace both. So the same Jesus who walked on water was also thirsty. The same Jesus who died on the cross also rose again. Right? And, and some people want to divide it and just focused on one nature or one part of Christianity, right? Some people just want to obey. They just want to follow the rules, right? Do what, you know, God tells us to do without any thought about heaven or demons or like healings or miracles or spiritual things, right? They just want to be a good person. And other people are only spiritual Right. They love to talk about heaven and spiritual things, but then they refuse to do any of those things. Right? John's faith in heaven, his belief about heaven, did not decrease his desire to love others fervently on earth. It did not take away his motivation to live a holy life, which is strange. Because that's what seems to happen for a lot of Christians. As soon as they become Christian, they don't really have this motivation to live a holy life. They don't have this desire to love other people. Right? His belief in a spiritual world actually increased his love for others. Increased his desire to do good on the earth. Right? Because so, think about what he says. He says, for love comes from God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So what he's saying is we have to be filled with a supernatural love that comes from God only, that comes from heaven in order to actually love other people on earth. Right? Because true love has no other source, has no other spring than God himself. So what John is saying is if you don't love people, or well, you don't want to love people, then you have to check your source. Are you really connected to the heavenly, eternal spring of Christ? Because right? I think what happens is this. Some people have faith in faith rather than faith in Christ. Right? They believe in the power of faith more than the power of Christ. Right? They'll say, I believe I'll go to heaven because I believe. Right, I have faith. A lot of faith. Right, but, they but they don't actually believe in Christ. Right? They, they believe in faith or this idea of like me going to church faithfully is what counts. And so what happens with those people who say that is they always end up doubting and losing their faith and wondering if God is real. And so even the smallest, weakest faith is enough to save you and transform you if you put that faith in the right thing. But great faith and the wrong thing never works. And what I'm you know trying to get at is true Christianity is ultimately a union between heaven and earth, between the supernatural and the natural, between man and Christ. It's not just first John, right? Love one another and do all these things. It's not just revelation, these wild and crazy and just amazing visions. Of heaven and in this battle is both is both of those things happening together, working in unison, right? Um, sometimes I think we may want to dismiss the Christian hope of heaven, right? Like we don't really want to care too much about it because we see it as a foolish fantasy, a childish dream. Like it's a great idea, it's a nice thought. But it's totally unrealistic and impractical. right? It's unreal in the sense that heaven is silent on the real world problems that I face every day. It's untrue in the fact that it doesn't accurately reflect the world that we see. right? Because the real world is dirty and messed up and broken and unpredictable. It's full of problems and pain and division and tragedy and injustice and evil heaven doesn't have any of those things so me thinking about heaven doesn't really help me live in the real world right who has who has the time to daydream about such silly unuseful things when i have real problems that i have to deal with real things that i have to contend with so it's kind of sad to me that a lot of christians think like this the idea of heaven is a good distraction is a nice diversion a good reward at the end, right? But it really doesn't help me, right? It's a, it's almost they think they agree with Nietzsche, right? Who says that it's an opiate, that religion is an opiate for the masses. You know, it helps hurting people get up, get, get through life. But I want you to think about this, okay? The Christian hope of heaven is not a useless, childish fantasy. It's not a diversion or a distraction from the real world. It is the real world. It is the new world, the the kingdom come that we talk about so often. Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So on the cross, when Jesus died, he overcame the world by conquering sin and death for all mankind. And so, and before he ascended into heaven, he said, "All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to be right." So, the hope of heaven, right? This idea of a perfect place of perfect goodness and perfect righteousness is more necessary in this world now more than ever, right? Because you need a concept of righteousness in order to want it or even seek it or you know strive for it. What caused people to abolish slavery? what caused what led to the civil rights movement right Why didn't just people continue owning slaves and being racist It's because people recognized that slavery and racism was wrong, even though it was widely widely practiced and considered the norm right even though it was normal and everybody did it, some people looked around and said, "This is not right. this is." Not perfect, this is not good. Right? So they, they believed in a better world. They believed in a better justice. Right? And it was their hope, it was their belief in a better world that caused them to better the world. So without this hope, this silly hope of heaven, you know this this belief in pure justice, pure you know perfect justice and righteousness and love, there is no hope for the world. There is no reason to improve it. Right? Without perfect justice, how will you know what is what true justice is? Without perfect righteousness, how will we know what true righteousness is or true love or whatever the case may be? We wouldn't be able to tell the difference between justice and injustice, between good and evil, between hate and love, between right and wrong. We wouldn't be able to tell. And I think... Right? Wouldn't you agree that this is what's really wrong with the world today? Everyone's divided, right? People, there's always on both sides. There's people too, that think that two opposite things are completely right somehow, right? They're like, you know, this is right, and then the other somebody will say this this uh, this opinion, which is completely Opposite and contrary to what you're saying is also right. Right, we can't agree on anything. Right, and so why do you think? Right, Jesus has not come back yet. Right, why do you think? You know, we always talk about we we're we're waiting for Jesus to come back. We're waiting for Jesus to return. Why do you think He hasn't come back yet? It's because we need heaven to form and shape earth into the image of heaven right that's what we pray for all the time you know let your will be let your kingdom come let your will be done on the, on earth as it is in heaven right why do you think jesus hasn't come back yet do you think he's waiting for heaven to become more perfect and more beautiful no he's waiting for earth to change right we need people to be more heaven minded and not less heaven-minded, right? I think that's kind of one of the things that we need to to, to, to talk about and think about is, you know, we are, we are people that have overcome the world, right? We're not just sitting here waiting, right? Waiting to die or go to heaven. We have overcome the world, and that's, that should mean something to us. So let me just kind of, you know, kind of sum it up with this, I think there's a lot of things that you know could be said about overcoming the world, but this one thing that I want to say is that overcoming the world means the death of all things that is not Christ. Right? Um, and you gotta really think about that one. Overcoming the world means the death of all things that are not Christ. Now, this may seem like radical or extreme or unreasonable. Or maybe even contrary to the Christian message of love and peace. Because, like, people will say, Hey, I thought we're supposed to love everyone, regardless of their race or religion or creed. But why are you saying that we have to, you know, it has to be the death of everything that's not Christ? If you look in the Old Testament, there are many instances where God orders the complete removal and even destruction of pagan. Things, pagan nations and even people, right? Like when they were entering the promised land, God directs the Israelites to drive out all the pagan people that were living in the land, right? He gives them careful instruction to remove all the high places to, to destroy every idol. And then he also tells them like, don't marry foreign wives, right? And seems a little bit extreme. Right. Like, why drive them out? Why not peacefully coexist with them? Isn't that what Christians are supposed to do? Peacefully coexist with our neighbors and love them and care about them? Why is God demanding that they drive them out? Right, Or well, why not keep them as slaves as a cheap source of labor? Isn't that more economical? To use those people to build up our nation, to build up our economy, to, you know, it is because I think that pagan nations, the, the 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 people that God was driving out, they were already doing evil, detestable things before God, and God knew that the Israelites would follow them, worship their gods, and practice the same things that, that they were practicing if God left them in that land. Right, and so that's the principle in First John and First Samuel fifteen. Uh, it's a famous story of Saul and the Amalekites. God tells Saul to attack the Amalekites. He says, Go now, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Do not put them, uh, do not spare them. Put them, put death, uh, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys, everything. Slaughter. Everything, wipe it out. That's the command that God gives Saul. But look at uh, Saul's um, reaction, his decision. But, But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good, they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Right? So that's what Paul. He spares the king. He spares the best of the cattle. He spared and saved everything that was good because he was like, it doesn't make sense to lose of the all of these good things. So let all of these useful, profitable things go to waste. And and I think that's what happens to us, just like Saul. We love the things of the world because we see the good in them. We see the potential in them. Uh, you know, the value of these things, the value of our work, the value of our family and children, the value of you know life and movies and art and you know all of these things. And a lot of times we want to keep those things. We want to save those things. We're like, God, that's good. These things are good. Think about how Solomon you know the wisest man in the world the most you know he was so dedicated to god in the beginning but then later on he was led astray by all of his beautiful foreign wives you know he began he became he began to worship idols even though he was that smart even though he was that educated he knew god and everything so well he was led astray by his beautiful foreign wives and how many men how many people are led astray by beautiful dreams and beautiful desires and good things right? beautiful dreams about what they're going to do with their life, about their future, about their career. And so this is what John says in First John, he understands it and he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful men, the lusts of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires are pass, pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. You know, so I'm not saying that, you know, like it's, it's wrong to love your family or it's like, it's not. Is wrong to find meaning in your job or career or enjoy those things. But you also always have to have, you have to kind of hold things loosely because you have to understand that these things of the world, if they're in the world, are passing away. Right? Because a new world is coming. You cannot hold on to these things. So the only way we can overcome the world is in Christ, through Christ. And I wonder, I was thinking about how many people you think will be in hell because they love the world, because they love their careers and their parents and their children or even their church or religion too much. They love Christianity so much that they forgot to love Christ. Because they just love being in the church, doing all these things. And Jesus will say, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so I think that's a very dangerous, like, trap there. You know, for us to love the world and not love God. Because we have forgotten that we we are people that have overcome the world. We are people who are looking forward uh, to a new heaven and to a new earth. That only comes to us in Christ. Uh, No matter how good and beautiful and lovely this world is, and lovely, you know, your parents are, or whatever, or whatever it is that you love, you can only enter through Christ, and they can only enter through Christ. And so it is our it should be our goal in life to learn how to love Christ and not love the world, and love. Our family love our children enough to, to, to give them Christ, to, to teach them Christ. To you know, that's that's the most loving thing that a parent or a son or you know anyone can do, is to give them and show them Christ. And so that's our mission. That's our goal in life. Um, so let's pray, um, dear Lord, uh, as we come before you, Father. You know our hearts, and you know how we can tend to love the world and the things of the world We get so caught up in those things, Father. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to lay down those things, to not be captivated by the world, but to know that there's no goodness, there's no righteousness apart from Christ. So may we learn to forsake all things, abandon all things. For the sake of winning Christ and gaining Christ in our hearts, in the hearts of our children, in the hearts of our family, in the hearts of our friends, in the hearts of this world, so that it will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.